title of our subject tonight is The Love of the Truth in an Age of Deceit. And we live in an age of deceit. Deceit that has become almost honed to a perfection. How do we make our way through it? Jesus Himself looked down at our time and said if it were possible, deceive the very ones that we're going to be saved. The love of the truth in an age of deceit. How many of you love being deceived? Could I see your hands? If you raise it, I want to talk to you after the meeting. <laughs> and yet, you know, we smile at that, but yet there are billions of people that are going to be deceived, not only about some money or a product. But they're going to be deceived about eternal life. You have your Bibles, and I ask them not to put the text on the screen because I want to make you work for it tonight. Now, there's a, there's a reason to my madness, not just to have you look it up. It, maybe it's on your phone, maybe it's on whatever, maybe you have it here, this way. I want you to be able to look at the context. And uh, so I think you should test your preachers. You ought to test them by the Word of God. That was, uh, that's a good Adventist mindset, by the way, is that you can preach, preacher, but we're, we're watching. We have the Word, and we want you to make it sound. Go to Genesis, if you don't mind. You know the story. I want to point out some things. Chapter 4, and I want to look at verse 16. Abel lay dead. Adam and Eve are brokenhearted at this raw evil that was already the fruit of their disobedience. And the Bible says that Cain, verse 16, went out from where? The presence of the Lord. The terrible thing about being lost is to lose the presence of the Lord. That's why Jesus cried out on Calvary's cross those awful, emotional, passionate words that I cannot reproduce in the passion that He said them, in the solemnity that He said them, in the agony that He said them, as He suffered for every human being on planet earth and drank the cup of that separation so that we don't have to drink it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I hope by the grace of God that no one in this room will stand in the great day of judgment outside the walls of the new Jerusalem and say those words. But the Lord did not leave Adam and Eve. And if you look at verse 26, I'm sorry, if you um, look at verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son 
and they named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. You know that when all your dreams have been laid in the dust, God still has another plan. And he had another plan for the salvation of us. Seth was important because Cain started a race. I don't mean race in an ethnicity sense, but a race in the sense of of, uh, loyalty to God, disloyalty to God. He started a race of human beings who would not be loyal to God, who wanted to seek their pleasure in this world. This world became their home. They measured their life in centuries. We measure our life in decades. But they were going not to focus on an eternity. They were going to focus on getting all the pleasure they could out of this world without God's guidance and direction. That's why he left the presence of the Lord. Seth started another race, put that in quotes, of men and women who said, no, we believe that this world is not everything that we have. We believe that there is a world to come that God can give us Eden again. They could go to the gates of the Garden of Eden and see that angel with that sword that turned in every direction guarding the tree of life. They believe that someday Jesus would return. The New Testament tells us that Enoch preached the coming of the Lord and would restore to them once again the tree of life. But time went on. And this great controversy between the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth reached a climax. You have your Bibles. I want you to notice in verse chapter 6, Verse 6, that the sons, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. The sons of God were the descendants of Seth. I heard somebody say amen. There's a lot of confusion out there in the world about who those people are. These are the descendants of Seth. And the daughters of men are the daughters of the descendants of Cain. And up to this time, they had kept their lines distinct. They were not intermarrying between one another. That they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now I've had and have, praise the Lord, some pretty important women in my life. I uh, went to see my mother today. She's lost a lot of ability. Age does that to you, you know. And I told her I was coming to camp meeting that I wouldn't be able to see her this coming week. She understood. She knows camp meeting. She started taking me to camp meeting as a little guy. And uh, we just didn't miss camp meeting. That was just the way it was going to be. And we loved it. 
And I praise God for that. Wonderful mother. And so I read a chapter of Scripture with her, had prayer together. And um, she's uh, added a great deal to my life. It's hard to see this beautiful woman who was my mother, is my mother, and to see age make its inroads. The truth is we are all on that journey. And that's why we need to do everything we can with the present. And I thank the Lord for a godly mother. A lot of the blessings that I have today in my life are because of her. And I have a wonderful wife that blesses me in many, many ways. You don't see her so much because she's always fulfilling all the needs of all the divisions. And she, she was busier today than I was. Her phone was ringing. So please don't misunderstand anything that I'm going to say. I hope you won't. I don't think you will. When God created Adam and Eve, He created Adam very handsome. Wouldn't you ladies agree with that? And He created Eve very beautiful. I think everybody would agree with that. God is a lover of beauty. By the way, you can ask an evolutionist sometimes, where did all the beauty come from if evolution is supposed to be just functional? Who painted all the sunsets? And I think... No one would argue today. I went back, I think it was 1887. I didn't bring it with me tonight. I started to, but it was a beautiful article on beauty written by a godly person. They didn't give, the, they didn't give their name. But when God created Adam and Eve, Adam was not only created handsome, he was also created with good character. So the beauty, or not the beauty, but the handsomeness of his form reflected the character of his heart. Is that true? The same was true with Eve. That the beauty of her being simply reflected the beauty of the character that God had given her. When sin entered, a struggle came. Because many times the character doesn't match the outward. Which means that you can't always look at a person and determine that they have a noble character or otherwise simply by the way they look. That makes sense? We men have a particular problem you ladies probably wouldn't understand. We're very visual. And when we look and see a lovely woman, we automatically think she has a lovely character. And you women know better. would be to God that we all have beautiful characters. Someday God will take care of the beauty part. And that's what the Savior is all about. But these men were looking at these women that were the descendants of Cain 
and they were beautiful and they said to themselves, they must be okay, they can't be as bad as what we have heard. And it turned out to be an unmitigated disaster for the cause of God. Because the very next verse, uh, by the way, this verse also shows how much influence women have. Now, you've heard me say this before. God's given you a lot of influence. Be careful how you use it. Some men should have said amen. You're quiet, brethren. We praise God for our sisters, our mothers, our wives in Christ. We thank God for them. But the very next verse says, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever. And then it gives the sad story of how people's hearts had become so evil, that they were evil. And the key word there is found in verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. When I read that, you're thinking about Cain's descendants. They already were there. This is the descendants of Seth. They were the last hope for planet Earth. This was a crisis of crisis. Because if this continued, all goodness would be wiped from the face of the earth and the plan of salvation would fail. Bible says, verse 8, that Noah found what in the eyes of the Lord? Amen. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know, there were only eight people saved in that ark. But if you flip back to chapter 5 and you look at verse 30, after he, Lamech, begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had what? So that meant that Noah, I don't know how many children you can have in 500 years, but a lot. That meant that Noah had a lot of brothers and sisters who chose not to be on that ark. He had lots of nieces and nephews who chose not to be on that ark. And no doubt, uncles and aunts. This preaching of 120 years certainly would have included the descendants of Cain. But much of this preaching was for the descendants of Seth. Because the descendants of Seth were deceived by what they thought looked wonderful but wasn't. And the results were a worldwide flood. Uh, have your Bible still look at Genesis 13, if you don't mind, for just a moment. 
Genesis 13, and that's another story that you know well. It's the story of Sodom, but I want you to look at a verse there. Verse 13, chapter 13, I want you to look at verse 10, if you don't mind, for a moment. Verse 10, and you know the story, Lot and Abraham decided they were so large they needed to go put some distance between them. Verse 10, and Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere, parentheses, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, it doesn't look like it looks today. Like the what? The garden of the Lord. Lot looks at the plain of Jordan. It looks like the garden of Eden. But it wasn't. It had Sodom at its heart. And it would end with the destruction of Sodom that the New Testament declares to be an example to everyone who will suffer the judgments of God who turn their back on Him. It looked like a garden, but it wasn't. And this story, next one, is very painful, found in Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14. And I want to look at verses 2 and 3 there for a moment. You know the story of Samson. I, it pains me to read the story of Samson. Uh, any of you men, does it pain you to read it? I'm sure it pains some women to read it as well. The story of Samson that could have been so different than the way it was. But um, looking at chapter 14, I, do you think that there were any Jewish lovely young Jewish women who could have been the wife of Samson? Do you just think that might have been possible? Dedicated, love the Lord, committed. So why in the world does he do just like the sons of Seth? If you, um, if you look at verse... Three, his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go get a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson didn't argue with them. He only said this, Get her for me because she what? Pleases me well. Well, it didn't end up that one. Eventually there was a woman called Delilah. Delilah has got him wrapped around her fingers, and she came to that moment. She says, nobody really understands your great strength. Tell me your secret. He knew better. Three times he told her a falsehood about her, his, the secret of his strength, and each time she betrayed him. And I wanted to say, when I read through that, I want to say, Samson, didn't you get it the first time? Second time. What, what, what is wrong with you? But he couldn't see it because he was so enambered with the beautiful Delilah. 
And it didn't end pretty. It ended very ugly. It was a heartache. And then I, um, for lack of time, I mean for sake of time, there's Solomon. Remember the story of Solomon? Handsome guy, smart beyond anything we can imagine. I can still see him in the Scripture description as he stands before that newly built temple to God and prays one of the most powerful, beautiful prayers. And the Shekinah glory comes and fills that temple. And then the Bible says, you can read it, that his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. They were so nice. They were so lovely. They were so persuasive. Uh, He had to be understanding. But before it's all done, he is sacrificing his own children on the altar of Molech. Only the grace of God that saved the man. I want to go to 2 Thessalonians as our scripture tonight. And I want to uh, look at that text again. It's a flash down to our day. And I want to say this, that, and I say it with sweet kindness, I say it with humility. I don't say it in a boastful way but I say it in a very thankful way. Seventh-day Adventists have really been given lots and lots of blessing and light. We are a blessed people. We have huge value that's added to our life. I could go down that road I want tonight. Verse 8, Then the lawless one, talking about the end of time, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of His mouth and destroy with the brightness of His coming. As Seventh-day Adventists, we know that there is a historical Antichrist. The Bible says the the spirit of Antichrist started in the days of the apostles. But I believe these texts also point forward to a final Antichrist that's revealed, I believe, in Scripture and supported by that wonderful gift of prophecy that the devil himself will impersonate or personate the coming of Christ and all the world is going to think that this is the real thing. It's going to be so lovely, so marvelous, and yet in the midst of speaking those same beautiful beatitudes that Jesus spoke, he reveals He reveals the footprint, the fingerprints of a serpent when he refuses to support all of God's Ten Commandments. And for God's commandment-keeping people, it will not be the flash and the dazzle and the marvelous everything. They ought to know the moment that that is spoken, that there's no light there and there's only darkness there, no matter how beautiful, how powerful, how marvelous it looks. Spirit of Prophecy says it will be like the most overwhelming 
overwhelming delusion. Don't think that there not be Seventh-day Adventists who come up to that place and embrace it. Don't think that you won't be attracted. Temptation is not temptation unless it's very attractive. And the more attractive it is, the more powerful the temptation. How do we, how do we make our way through this maze of deception? Deception coming at us from all kinds of different directions. I believe the, the key is held here. Verse 9 talks about the signs and the lying wonders. Verse 10 says, with all unrighteous deception. In other words, it's unrighteousness, but it appears as though it's righteousness. You understand what I mean? In other words, you're not going to show up and say, I'm unrighteous. You're going to show up and say, I'm righteous. It's deceiving people to believe that unrighteousness is righteousness and righteousness is unrighteousness. How will you know the difference? Verse 10 goes on with all deception among those who perish because they did not receive the what? The love of the truth. And Ellen White would have added, as it is in Jesus. The love of the truth as it is in Jesus. How much do you love the truth? Let me get real personal. How much do you love the truth about yourself? We have these um, carnal hearts. And we've all got them, including your preachers. We're all on this road together. And that's why we need Jesus to take us by the hand into the garden of our heart and tell us the truth and what we need to do to change, to be transformed, to become like Him. To take these carnal, selfish, that's what a carnal heart is, selfish heart, and turn it into an unselfish heart. One of my prayers is, O oh Lord God of heaven and earth, in my inmost person, the person who I am that nobody else can see, help me to be unselfish love like you. I want to practice unselfish love because we're going to be able to practice it through all eternity. Isn't that good news? Only the sa- We have to have a Savior. We can't save ourselves. You know that. Only He can make that change in the heart and the depths of our being. But I don't think the enemy of souls is just working you know, in each of our hearts. He's working in Christendom. He's working in the whole world. I, I think we're coming down, folk, to the end of time. Now, I don't know that it's going to happen tomorrow or next year. I don't know. But I do know that the stage has been set tremendously and great within the past, since last camp meeting, 
huge things have taken place. We have a Jesuit pope today. I say we. I don't. I don't uh, mean he's us or ours. Might take it and twist it the wrong way. You know, you got to make sure everybody understands what you mean. The world has a Jesuit pope, and uh, he spoke not only to the Congress of the United States, but he also spoke to the United Nations. If you go back 21 years to 1994, you'll find another unbelievable thing happening, and many of us knew then that was a sure sign of the end, because the evangelicals, not the liberal, I use that word in quotes, unbiblical Protestants that have basically left sola scriptura, evangelicals still claim that they hang on to that, but you have evangelicals who've always had the historic understanding of the man of sin and who he was. In 1994, they said it's going to be now evangelicals and Catholics together. There are many wonderful Catholic people. Many wonderful liberal Protestant people. A lot of nice people. That's not the point. The point is that this papal power has a track record. And people think that he's now become a nice Protestant. But if you go to the encyclopedia and look up the Inquisition you will find, it's online now, you can read it yourself, you'll find that the Inquisition is still being defended. And it's being defended as a time when the church was more pure. I get a load of that. So if the church is going to become more pure, then it would be bringing back the Inquisition. The Constitution of the United States is a reaction against all of those things. Now, there's a very fascinating statement by Ellen White in Great Controversy 588. You still with me? She says, Papists, talking about the papal power, Protestants and worldlings will alike accept the form of godliness without power. What does that mean without power? Because the Bible says they're going to have signs and wonders and people are going to be amazed and they're going to think that's the power. We're talking about the power to transform a wicked human heart, a selfish human heart, into an unselfish being. The power to transform a human being, to take them from the depths of sin and transform them into godly reflection of the Savior. That's where the real power is at. And they see in this union between them a grand movement for the conversion of the world ushering in the long-expected millennium. Do you know why the book of Isaiah has that picture of people seeing Jesus coming again and it says, Look, this, behold, this is our God. We have, what's the next word? Waited for Him. Why have they waited for Him? Because the, that it's been counterfeited. Everybody thinks that Jesus has come, but they have waited for Him, and they are not disappointed. 
Satan appears as the benefactor of the race, healing the diseases. And it, by the way, if you don't think Ellen White had the prophetic gift, here's a good reason why to believe it and about what I'm ready to read. Professing to present a more exalted system of religious faith. That's another way of saying an ecumenical new age with spiritualism all putting it together. But at the same time, he, Satan, works as a destroyer. In other words, he's not what he appears. He's the one that's bringing all this terrible mess. Satan, listen to this carefully. Satan works through the elements, the weather, if you please, also to garner in his harvest of unprepared souls. Listen carefully. He, Satan, has studied the secrets of the laboratories of nature. And he uses all his power to control the elements as far as God will allow. I'm telling you that the reason you're seeing an increase in natural disasters is because there's somebody behind it. Now, I didn't say, it didn't matter to me whether it's the CO2 in the atmosphere or the manipulation of the enemy of souls or all of the above with the enemy of souls bringing it on. The fact is it's going to produce and is producing terrible natural disasters. And I want to say it clearly, those are going to increase exponentially. Before the Pope, while we were in camp meeting last year, the Jesuit Pope released an encyclica or a major position paper, sermon, whatever you want to call it. And he took a stand that was unpopular with some of those evangelicals that he had made 21 years ago. But he says climate change is real. And we've got to do something about it. In addition to that, the Pontifical, Pontifical Science Society of Science, which is under his control, and the Sociological Pontifical School, before he released his encyclica, they released a very startling prediction. And I wanted to read just what they said. I'll just read the title. It says... The title of it was Climate Change and the Common Good. That word common good is now become a theme. You'll hear it from the United Nations. You'll hear it from the President of the United States. You'll hear it from both parties. You'll hear them talking about, we've got to do something for the common good. If it's for the common good, and you stand in the way of that, what do you think is going to be the prescription for you? When they release their, their study, this, they release a statement, and here's the title, Climate Change and the Common Good, 
a statement, listen carefully, of the problem and the demand. What was the word? Not a suggestion, a demand for transformation solutions. The Pope, they went on to say this, that unless action is taken immediately, that by 2,100, how many years is that away? 84. It's not that far. You say, well, that's a lifetime. But listen, they want something done immediately because they say by 2,100 it will be too late and the whole planet will be on the verge of extinction. The whole human race is being threatened by this. Something has to be done. The Pope releases his encyclica two or three months later, last camp meeting, and here is his solution to it. His solution is this. Listen to his encyclica. Sunday, like the Jewish Sabbath, I have news for him, it was also Adam's Sabbath. is meant to be a day that heals our relationship with God in ourselves and others in the world. Rest opens our eyes to the larger picture and gives us a renewed sensitivity to the rights of others. And so the day of rest centered on the Eucharist, or the uh, Eucharist, I'm sorry, the Mass is an easier way to say it, sheds its light on the whole week and motivates us with a greater concern for nature and the poor. And then President Obama, I'm not being politics, he's not the only one or the only party that's done this, but he is the President of the United States. He says, I welcome His Holiness, Pope Francis Encyclica, and deeply admire the Pope's decision to make the case, clearly, powerfully, and with the full moral... What? authority of his position for action on global climate change. President of the United States goes on to say, we must protect the world's poor who've done the least to contribute to this looming crisis and stand to lose the most if we fail to avert it. The love of the truth in an age of deceit. There's an old story. It's a parable. It didn't happen. It's what did I say it was? There was a young man walking on a cold winter day. And he was walking along. He saw in his path to his startledness a snake, a very poisonous snake. And he stopped and he backed up. But the snake said in a very soothing voice, don't be afraid. I'm, I'm not who you think you are. I, I am. I, I'm really a pretty nice guy. And I'm really cold. I, if you could just pick me up and put me inside your warm coat... I would be so grateful. I, I know you're afraid, but 
I'm not going to bite you. I, I know about my reputation, and I'm sorry if I've done any, anything in the past, but I'm really a very nice person. And by the way, I'll tell all the other snakes to stay away from you if you just will put me inside that nice warm jacket of yours. I don't know about that. I know your reputation. Oh, but you don't understand. I, I, I've changed. But you still have fangs and you still have poison. Your, yes, but I would never use them. I, uh, that wouldn't be the right thing to do, would it? it Please, it's cold. Take me into your coat. So the young man says, yeah, I have a whole life to live. I, this is taking a big chance. Oh, you have nothing to worry about. In fact, I'm going to be a blessing to you if you just put me inside that warm coat. I said, okay. So he picks up the poisonous snake and he puts him inside his warm coat. Snake settles down. They're walking along. The snake makes wonderful conversation. Thanks him so much for helping him get so warm. And then all of a sudden, the snake bit him. The young man is reeling from the poison. He throws the snake out and he falls down. And he's beginning to die from the poison and he's looking at the snake and he says but you promised you 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 promised you said you were different you the snake looked at him coldly and said you knew what i was when you picked me up america you know what he is when you picked him up. This is not going to end well. Revelation 17 says that the whole world was infatuated with her beauty. How about Seventh-day Adventists? Do you think we're immune? I think we too have some things that are really at us. How many of us want to save every young person we possibly can? I know every hand would go up. But there are many voices in the Adventist church today that says, in order to do that, you've got to become more like the world. You've got to really get cool. I want to ask a question of the story of the prodigal father. He let his son go because he refused to change his principles. Even though he loved him to the depths and he was out there every day hoping that he could see the form of that boy coming home. And it was the principled love of that father, that warm love that his father had for him. The boy knew that. This boy had not been in a home where he was just told to do whatever. He got hugs, he got kisses, he got warmth, he got care. But the father would never change his principles. And out there in that pig pen, that young man finally figured it out. Listen, 
Had the father changed who he was, there would have been no home for the boy to come home to. Our Heavenly Father's not going to change. And He's not going to change His principles. I mean, it sounds so good. And then, of course, there's those voices. I had a letter, obscure where it was, well-meaning, well-intentioned. I mean, we, we don't want to talk about those beasts of revelation. Uh, we don't need to talk about the doctrines of, of uh, Daniel and Revelation. We just need to talk about Jesus. I wrote back kindly and I said, when you talk about Revelation, if you look at the title, it is the revelation of Jesus. You cannot have Jesus without His teachings. Second John verse 9, you can look it up, says that if you don't have the doctrines of Jesus, you don't have God. That's plain. It's not one or the other. It's not having the doctrines without Jesus or Jesus without the doctrines. If you embrace the biblical Jesus, you must embrace His teachings. But it's very attractive. Perhaps for people who grew up without having the hugs and the warmth and the care that Jesus has when He teaches us and sometimes tells us what we need to change with tears in His voice, but with a clarity that we can't miss. Book of Revelation, chapter 22. I hope this is what you'll get out of this camp meeting. I hope, my dear brothers and sisters, that you're going to be better prepared for what's coming on the earth. Surely, as I'm standing here, the close of probation is looming over planet earth, even as it loomed over Andaluvian Noah's day. Surely as I stand here. I like to do history and I was going over a presentation on the last, the 24 hours, the first 24 hours past Pearl Harbor. Probably not an American that doesn't know what Pearl Harbor means. It was that sneak attack by the Japanese Empire, the Empire of Japan, on an unsuspecting United States of America. First 24 hours of Franklin D. Roosevelt's actions. Within 24 hours, he would be standing before Congress asking for a declaration of war. 
instead of four days of what it cost them to have that declaration of war for World War I, it would take one hour. But behind the scenes, Franklin D. Roosevelt was very frightened. And he said to some of his inmost people, how unprepared America was. Hitler had 200 combat-ready brigades, battalions. Japan had 100 battalions, combat-ready. The United States had one. Franklin D. Roosevelt was afraid that the empire of the East would roll on to San Francisco and it would take us all the way, it would take us only being able to stop them at Chicago. They were unprepared. Listen, the day of probation is going to close. Will we be prepared? Take this camp meeting time to prepare your hearts for what is coming. Verse 11 of chapter 22. He who is unjust, let him be unjust what? He who is filthy, let him be filthy. And he who is righteous, let him be righteous. And he who is holy, let him be holy. And behold, I am coming quickly. Verse 17. And the Spirit and the Bride say what? Come. It's not only the Holy Spirit alone. It's the Holy Spirit working through His church. That's why we had to unlock Revelation. That's why we're going to be talking all week about plans for the future. Folk, we need to double down like never before. We need to double our efforts. We need to make the sacrifices we need to make to move the work of God and let people know once again, don't pick up the snake. It's not just the Spirit, it's the Spirit and the Bride that says, come, come, let him who is thirsty, come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. My appeal to you on this opening night of camp meeting is make a new commitment to be part of the Bride of Christ that does not simply go to church and sit in the pew I'm not trying to be unkind. Not, don't be the kind of Adventist that just simply returns your tithe. Hallelujah, as important as that is. As important as church attendance is. My appeal to you as the bride of Christ is to join with the Spirit of God and let your voice, your actions, your life be used to make that appeal. Come! This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.